I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. So, Drew, we've got a good selection of shows this week. Some of them, you know, big tentpole shows, some more niche. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> don't. I've, I've made it my own. Don't treat me you like don't, that. You don't, you don't have a monopoly on niche. The niche niche is mine. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be doing that from now on. So, yeah, why don't you take us away with um, Stephen King adaptation, The Stand? Yeah, so our first uh, pilot for this week is Stephen King's The Stand. Mm. Now, this is quite an interesting uh, miniseries. So it's uh, it was released last year, but in Australia this year. And it's one of the, I think, maybe the second time this has actually been adapted as a miniseries. Now, I should say, you, you and I are both big Stephen King fans. We are. This is a big blind spot for me. I haven't read it or seen the original. Yeah. I, no, part of me wonders why that is. I, I've almost read every single Stephen King novel, bar mm. the stand. I think it's intimidating heft yep. is something that's always... Discourage part me from of the suitable the suitable boy canon. <laughs> yeah, it's a double as doorstops. It is a, it is an enormous book. I but, also say, I'm not a huge fan of Stephen King in apocalypse mode, like Under the Dome, Dark Tower. Like he loves scenarios where apocalypse. Like a certain substrand of his work that focuses on scenarios when like you know apocalypse or some catastrophic event isolates people and human nature ensues. (laughs) I'm I'm not a big fan of that side of his work. I think I could be, and in some contexts am, but I think the the differentiator for me is I'm not a fan of Stephen King fantasy, but I am a big fan of Stephen King horror. But even something like The Mist, like, you know, the Frank Darabont... Is well, the fog, I think that's the mist or the fog. Which ones? That's the mist. So yeah. John Carpenter's the fog. Yeah. Even that one, or like Under the Dome. Like, under, did you see Under the Dome? I did not see Under the Dome. Like, it's not that fantasy based, but it's the same kind of like human nature. <laughs> human nature. <laughs> yeah. So I, I agree with you. I haven't yep. really encountered those ones, but I generally sort of steer clear of the of the the fantasy, the mm. fantastical side of Stephen yep. King. Now, this although it has quite a bit of horror as well, uh. so. It's one that I've always been interested in exploring. Mm. The, and the original is so iconic. The, the nine ninety four series, series. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, it, as someone who hasn't seen that, I don't mm. think you've seen that either. Uh, no, and I wonder if that, in a way, that that's good. It means we can judge this one more in its own terms. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I was intrigued to explore this and really to enter into the world of Stephen King long form yep. television yep. series. Um, so, really, what it's about? It's about a. A, a pandemic, so mm. it is it is fairly timely, mm. and it's been described as King's apocalyptic vision of a world decimated by plague. And in addition to that, that sort of horror element, that contagion element, we also have an ep- epic elemental struggle between good and evil. Mm. Human nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, literally, good yes. and evil are literally embodied in this yes. in this series. So, uh, good is embodied. And you don't really fully learn this in the pilot, so it's, so it's sort of sort of quite skeletal here. Mm. So good is represented by very old... Um, Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg is good. <laughs> so she plays a, a somewhat saintly uh, character called yeah. uh, Mother Abigail, although mm. you don't really learn this so much in the pilot. She she really just only crops into it in, in sort of unusual kind of dream-like slash kind of fugue-like sort of scenes. And that, that is such a Stephen King name, Mother Abigail, like, I don't know, like Maine, New England, gothic-y. Yes. And a little bit of name too. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg is Mother Abigail. <laughs> and and Mother Abigail is contrasted to, I suppose, the character, a creature of nightmares, um, who we really almost don't really see at all, despite the fact he, he plays quite a prominent role in the posters, um, Alexander Skarsgård. Yes. 
Actually, which is it? I, I, I always get confused. Is it Sarsgaard or Skarsgård? Skarsgård. Yeah. yeah, we need to bone up on our, on on our a Swedish. Sc- on our Scandinavian. <laughs> so he is a, uh, he plays a character called Randall Flagg, ah. or otherwise known as the Dark Man. <laughs> Stephen King is great at names. <laughs> that's right, that's the right. The ritual of Chud. <laughs> so I think, I think this is, in some ways, this really prefigures what a lot of people describe as Stephen, being Stephen King's masterpiece, which is uh, the, the, dark, Tower. the Dark Tower yeah. sort of fantasy sequence. Now, that was actually adapted into what was going to be a trilogy of movies mm. and also a spin-off TV series. So really grand ambitions for that. And that really came at a cropper when the, the movie absolutely tanked at the box office. So maybe this is another chance, yep. given the recent renaissance of Stephen King adaptations, to sort of get a little bit of uh, a piece of that pie. And it's, it's interesting because I, I definitely feel like the stronger recent Stephen King adaptations have tended to move away from straight horror. Like they've either they've tended to blend horror with other genres yes. or other genre cues. I'm thinking especially of Mr. Mercedes, which is my favourite, and it's basically horror noir. So the bits of this I liked the best were the contagion horror bits. Like mm. I thought it's epidemiological horror. It worked really well and it was very timely. Like it's it really kind of captures like the terror of sneezing and yes. coughing during the pandemic. So there's kind of like ambient sneezing and coughing. Like it's it's everywhere in the background. Yes. And the symptoms of this particular pandemic are pretty gross as well. Like you basically just choke on phlegm. Yes. So it's, yes. It, it captures that visceral fear of like a single sneeze yes. as a potential super spreader event really well. Although I have to say I found the way it foreshadowed illness a little stupid. Yep. Like, for example, the, the president's on the radio Make an announcement that we will, yeah, true. we will, you know, stride forward. We will, we will persist. And then he's like, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's, it's a bit like that moment in the Snowman film where someone gets hit by a snowball. Yes, <laughs> it's like a, it's like a harbinger of doom, but it's also like a little bit, bit yes. silly. Yes, yep. I mean, if you thought you were a social pariah having a slight cold around COVID, I mean, yep. imagine exactly, you know, Captain. What is it, Captain? What's Hiccups the, or yeah, what's, what's, I mean, if we, Captain if we, Trips. I mean, Captain Trips is what King, they dubbed the virus. I mean, if he's great at naming characters, he's even better at naming pandemics. Yes. He, should, he should, be, should be naming pandemics, hurricanes, yes, typhoons. That's right. He's great at naming catastrophes. Surely he can do something better than the Rona. I agree. I agree. <laughs> he's got Captain Trips. Look, when I say the epidemiology stuff is great, that's comparatively. <laughs> I was pretty. I was quite underwhelmed by this. Look, I mean, I, I thought it. I really wanted to like, enjoy this. Yeah, I really look, did. At first, I was. I was totally. Re- I was totally ready for a great Stephen King TV series. I agree. And look, at first, I thought the pacing was really good. There was this, they cut between stories really well. There wasn't too much speechifying. There wasn't too much, you know, pontificating. Got, it wasn't too it's, ponderous. It's got a quite good cast. It's got a quite good cast. It, you know, not and, a great cast, but quite a good yeah. cast. <laughs> James exactly. Marston is kind of the, yeah, the actor you call. Look, when... he'll do. He'll do. <laughs> he he's, will do. He's fine. He will do. In this context, he's, he's maybe your tenth person you call, but he he works he'll, just fine. He'll get the job he done. He works just fine. I mean, yeah, exactly. And you know, by the way, what was the deal with the doctor that he was interacting with? Yeah, I, I thought he was a stand-up stand-up yeah. routine. Ha- was, ha- Hamish Linklater. For some reason, that guy just annoys me. Yeah. That actor. I don't know why. There's just something so like defeatist about his presence in the screen it's like yeah. it's like he likes he like plays characters who've given up trying yes so like he, yeah i mean look at first i thought it was it was quite good so yeah he said it cuts between the present post-pandemic mm. um, or peri-pandemic and <laughs> and the past when the pandemic hits and it's intercut with these occasional kind of dream sequences that seem to be calling people to some kind of you know society or cult but i have to say 
it gets pretty speechy in the second half. <laughs> so you have this, you have a character, um, it's like a military general or something, a character played by J.K. Simons, who I can only describe as a character J.K. Simons was always going to play. <laughs> like in the kind of character, well, before think, he turns his back, you know it's going to be J.K. Simons. I think when you cast J.K. Simons increasingly, he's become a bit of a self-parody. Uh, I agree. Of like kind of sanctum, sanctimonious sanctimony sentiment. He's become a place where moral certainty happens. Yes. <laughs> and this one, so... The, the, he's the, become the new Ed Harris. He's become the... Yeah, yeah. Although I don't think Ed Harris is ever quite this bad. No. I think Ed Harris... Ed Harris is a residual archness or something that yes. jk jk simons is just like a serious beard now yes but you know the two low points in terms of speechiness first when he reads the second coming by wb yates oh yes that was friggin awful <laughs> and also the main the main character will come back to in a sec who gave me major incel vibes by the way reads his manifesto at the end which i'm really scared is going to become a, a running voiceover stephen king loves like the unhinged like a writer. Yes. And I feel like this feels like in, in, in some ways, this feels like another writer's block narrative, right? <laughs> yeah. the, the pandemic comes and suddenly the main guy can write. So it feels like... Everything in Stephen King is a prop for writer's block. It's a prop it? for writer's block. So it's, <laughs> it's like freaking get over yourself, I know. man. And, you know, the pandemic's wiped out 99.9% of the population. And, also Stephen, and you're worried about your freaking novelistic career now. I agree. And Stephen King doesn't seem like someone who suffers writer's block. I mean, if yeah. anything... Rain it in a bit, and a bit of quality <laughs> control. But um, editor's block. Exactly, exactly. So I just kind of felt like by the end there was. This definitely it, had the bloatedness of a Stephen King. Yes. Yes. Yes, the same bloat that the disease. Mm, interesting. Mm, maybe, maybe the disease allegory. is a symptom of his <laughs> writing style. But I just, I just kind of felt like, especially by the end, you know, the beginning was everything I like about Stephen King, suspenseful, exciting. By the end, it was everything I dislike. Like, it was mm. really speechy. It was really talky. It was just kind of portentous in a really stupid way. Yes. Like, just, I couldn't really understand the last 20 minutes. It was just crazy imagery flashing before your eyes with no rhyme or reason. Yes. It was weird. There was, some, there was something structurally I disliked about yes. this TV series. Now, I'm not exactly sure the way The Stand is established as a book or in the original TV series, but cutting between those three narratives, which is set at different points of time with a whole bunch of different characters, uh, some in the past, some in the present, like to me was really confusing just at a basic narrative level. But also I found the slightly suspenseful narratives were already foreclosed Absolutely. by the later sort of flash forwards to I the agree. future. I agree. And also, you know, it's like he was trying to do two things that are quite difficult on their own terms. Like he was trying to move between you know, the start and the end of a pandemic. And as you said, that's pretty hard to maintain tension. Mm. But he's also trying to include a really eccentric sprawl of characters. And the sprawl is very unusual. Like you have a a core of naturalistic characters, including this one main guy, the high school student, you know, writer. Harold Lauder. Harold Lauder. Harold Lauder. (laughs) Um, And, you know, a couple of other characters. But then you have this kind of cult-like fringe of the action and just moving between past and present you know, surely it seemed like part of what was important or significant about this cult that emerges during the pandemic is the way it evolves. Yes. So it was really hard to get a sense of what drew people. Like, it's like not just cutting between the start and end of a pandemic, it's cutting between the start and end of a pandemic that produced a major cult. Yes. So it's really hard to kind of get a sense of how that evolves. And as a result, the cult stuff just felt very portentous yes again like it just felt very it felt a bit silly like it felt a bit like a bit of a desperate grab for profundity or something like that yes yes and there was a sort of cumulative i suppose emphasis the the imagery like quite labored imagery of Mm. good and evil yes uh you know combined with uh i suppose 
like, the portentousness of that that poetry recital oh, combined I mean, with the the writer and it just it did let build me, up. Let to... Writers out there, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not a professional writer, but let me give you a tip. If you've reached a point where one of the characters has to recite the entirety of the Second Coming by W. B. Yeats, <laughs> back to the friggin' drawing board. I mean, I also felt too like you know, apocalypse narratives can be really great. It's yes. also a pretty easy way to generate pathos it is, and yeah. suspense. And I felt like, especially in the second half year, like King was like, or the series creators were like, really leaning heavily on just the inherent scariness of apocalypse. Yes. In some ways, though, you, you would hope that in a pandemic pandemic now but there'll be some sort of trauma with the the character's parents passing away yeah exactly they really glossed over that and really focused on this kind of this kind of incels you know and inability is, to to woo a girl which this, felt like a this is something a weird focus and this something, I'm, I'm, I'm interested here you've referred to him that way because i mean i thought i, I was really intrigued by where this character is going to go because in a way he's presented as a protagonist to mm. start off with and i think what will probably happen is he won't become quite a protagonist or an antagonist who'll become a kind of inspired madman that mm. Stephen King loves. But, I mean, in, his, in essence, he's a Stephen King nerd character. Yes. But, I mean, we first meet him after being suspended for school from school for a story about a school shooting. Mm. He's caught peeping at his neighbour through a fence. He can't get his sci-fi published. Yeah. And, like, when the pandemic comes, it's like his incel fantasies come to life. So the only people left are him and the girl. Mm. He's kind of stalking. He gets himself a gun as soon as possible and poses with it. He steals a vintage typewriter so his sci-fi <laughs> looks better. He tells this one girl left very seriously that they have to breed to yeah. ensure the future of humanity. And he, he gets he mansplains to her that they need to find more people. <laughs> Duh. So I just kind of felt like it's like it's almost like the kind of, you know, the whole conspiracy cult thing just turns him to like a right-wing, alt-right, 4chan, <laughs> online edgelord. It's like, so I've, I found him a really weird kind of character. Like, we well, meant to be It's almost like the pandemic was a prop to his writerly fantasy. Yeah, the, pa- <laughs> the pandemic radicalises him into the incel he always was. So it's like, it's like yeah, you know, you, you can definitely be alt-right, alt-right if you're the last person left on the planet. So it's kind of a weird dynamic with him. Like, I mean, I'm not saying a series has to have a sympathetic protagonist, but it did feel like a certain kind of inspired nerd persona in Stephen King's work had ramified, ramified very differently now. Yes. From how it, he also, I wonder if he'd become like, you know, like J.G. Ballard's novels often have a kind of insane seer figure mm. or prophet figure. I mm. wonder if this guy will become that. But well, so, I feel like Mother Abigail and Randall Flagg might well, be those, but a, he a, might be a, a sort of a... a a mediator, yeah. maybe, between them. And something else, like, you know, not to, you know, I'm not trying to call it serious, but there's weird magical black stuff going on with Stephen <laughs> King. It has to be said, like, you know, the, the, the index case for this pandemic is the only black character we see. It starts with a black character, and it's just full of people having dreams of magical black people gesturing yes. them towards some kind of... The Whoopi Goldberg character is, is I think, a little bit unfortunate. Yeah. In, in the same way. like like Oprah Winfrey in A Wrinkle of Time, well, like that kind of gimmick casting. Or I was thinking, you know, Stephen King possibly has been guilty of this Green in Mile. the past with the Green, Green Mile. Mile. Exactly. I mean, it feels... And it's interesting. Have you, you've read The Green Mile? Or, I have, or, yes. So The Green Mile has a similar kind of slightly saccharine, sentimental quality as well, which I can see coming mm. through here a little bit as well. But it, it is... But The Green Mile is grounded in, in a sort of prison... In a, in a crime narrative. In a prison story. In Coffee the, on the Mile. Yes. <laughs> I mean, think... Do you remember at high school in the library that Stephen King released that in six different parts? We used to borrow them week by week. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, no, yeah. I was... I was it, it's very strange. But it's the a weird magical blackness thing. There's something yes. about that going on yeah. here. The Whoopi Goldberg. It has an I, age I don't, well. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about the Whoopi Goldberg. Well, you can imagine that if this is the, the pilot, we're setting up the pandemic. Yeah. Now, we, we're not even really into the deep fantasy. I agree. 
how much more of this, how much more pretentious or portentious is it going to get? And my fear is that, you know, the stuff that I think works strongest, you know, comparatively, yeah. the epidemiological horror is going to drop away and yes. it's going to become like another Stephen King human nature cult. I think Stephen King's like quite weak when it comes to like ritual and ceremony. Yes. Like he, whenever he's, whenever his books devolve into descriptions of ritual, they tend to falter. Like he's best just with classical suspense and yes, place. Yes. And so I think And he's best when he's like the Dame Numal of his of his novels is more modest. Yes. So I agree. when it's a grand clash of civilizations Sweeping. at that at that level, that, that sort of grand epic level, yes. I, I don't think he's no, as effective as it's his as a as a I suppose storyteller. So it's interesting. Like I I think I'm probably an out for this. I mean, I've loved. There's certain Stephen King things. I mean, I loved. I've loved. I love. I love Mr. Mercedes, and we also both really love Gerald's Game. I mean, that's yes. that's not quite horror either, is no. it? Like it's like psychological. It's yeah. horror, but it's also a psychological thriller yeah. and a chamber drama. I mean, it's not conventional horror. Yeah. You can see why that one was left later. To and I think even even sort of failed. Like I, I consider failed Stephen King experiments, like Doctor Sleep, for example. Yes. Yeah. I still need to see that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think to a certain extent failures, but they're interesting failures. Yes. I don't even know whether I'd consider this to be an interesting failure. No, it's it's too safe, and it's you know, it's a little bit on the nose as a pandemic text as well. I think if yeah. you're going to do, if you're going to make a text about the pandemic, do something a little bit more adventurous with it, whatever your take is. Whereas this, or in some ways, having lived or currently living through yeah. a, a pandemic, this ridiculous, fantastical pandemic appears more sort yeah, of ridiculous. It's Pathetic, and it's interesting to compare it to something like Contagion, yes. which is completely prescient, spot on. So, look, yes. I think even though I like Stephen King, and I was excited to watch this, I'm probably a hard out. I'm the same. All right, now our next television series for the week, and this one's getting quite a bit of buzz. Mm. So, this is actually kickstarting Phase Four of the Marvel. I the, suppose you wouldn't even really describe it as cinematic universe the MMU, anymore. The MMU, the Marvel <laughs> Media Universe. That's right, multimedia content universe. And also, by the way, how distant does the peak of the Marvel Cinematic Universe seem now, like when it was, it's lost some of its power and sweep, hasn't it? Well, there was no there was no Marvel movie released last year, yeah, right. which is very unusual. Mm. So into that space, I think rushed DC, but that that hiatus, yep. I think, has been filled, and that that fan appetite yep. has now been filled by, or at least in theory, by One Division. One Division, <laughs> which so, is, which is an interesting one to see, not really knowing the MCU. No, no. So there's a couple of interesting questions I have. For you, Billy, mm. how well-versed in the MCU are you? So, not really at all. Um, beyond beyond the kind of big films like I'm... I, I have you seen the Avengers? I have seen the Avengers films, but even those... Have you seen the Avengers? Uh, Age of Ultron. Endgame. Age of Ultron. Yeah, I have Endgame? seen them all. Okay. I have, oh, yeah. Okay. I, I didn't particularly like them, and I didn't understand them beyond a certain point because the, the world-building is so dense now. I mean, this is interesting, this pile, isn't it? I mean, should we... If we give a brief overview, like it's about... Well, yeah, how about you give, it's, it's an interesting one to give an overview of. Like, how would you summarise it? Sure. And, uh, yeah, it's almost in some ways kind of unclassifiable. Mm. But effectively, it's based on characters from the Marvel comics mm. who also have appeared in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm. So those are Wanda Maximoff, otherwise known as Scarlet Witch. By Elizabeth Olsen. And, and Vision, played by Paul Bettany. Now, this occurs after the events of Avengers Endgame. Mm. Not having seen that movie, mm. I have to say there's a slight lapse mm. in my understanding of the continuity mm. between those. Um, but effectively, they reprise their roles. They play a married couple who are living in in 
some sort of a what conventional appeared, what American appeared to suburbia. Nineteen fifties suburbia, right? It's shot in black and white. It's styled like a normal, like a nineteen fifties television mm. program. It feels like it has the the frame aspect ratio yes, of the nineteen fifties and the acting television is very series. stylized. Yeah, the acting is very stylized, mm. and it, it goes for you know classic sitcom, mm. you know, Pratt Falls mm. and Easy Laughs. Looking at this this synopsis, it seems like the actual series does take place over time and using different television tropes oh, right. over 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 the decades. Okay. So it, it's an interesting amalgam I mean, here, and there's some suggestion at the end as well that that not everything is as it seems. And that's, that I, I didn't realise that it adopted different television styles, and that's interesting in itself, isn't it? Because for a while there, it felt like part of what the MCU was trying to do was colonise and cannibalise the entire history of cinema. So yes. it felt like the MCU, its project was in some ways to save cinema and certainly it, it brought people to theatres in a totally unexpected way in the 2010s. Yes. But also it drew quality actors from every possible genre, quality directors. It did, you know, it tried to pastiche and appropriate every possible genre. So it was almost like the MCU was like a, you know, a cannibalistic machine appropriating cinematic history to itself. Definitely. So it feels like there's something appropriate about an MCU series where every episode is like adopts a different televisual style. Well, in some ways it makes sense that the MCU would, would I suppose, divert to television because yes. the, the, that serialisation process Absolutely. that was going on, basically movies mm. starting in the middle of the action, mm. ending on a cliffhanger, mm. was much more in some ways, well-suited to television, television other than the spectacle. And also, you know, I think even though it renewed a certain kind of big-screen experience, I don't think the MCU films are that cinematic no, in terms of their sense of place. Aside from the spectacle. Yeah, but I think that in some ways they work and they seem designed to work just as well on a small screen as yeah. on a big screen. Like, it's a kind of spectacle that it has a kind of... Something big... is somewhat lost, you know, watching yeah. you know, Avengers Endgame on, a, on your phone. But I, want, I wonder if part of their their marketing or their kind of their brand you know management is to make it so that people can you know like something to make it look just as good on a phone like I wonder that's probably a part of it I mean I thought this was quite an inspired premise and that you know so much mid-century cinema and so much mid-century television is poised at that exact cusp between science fiction and suburban melodrama yes so you get this sense in the 50s that there's this there's this sense that everything outside the suburban family home, as soon as you open that door, you're confronted with an otherness that, you know, if you take one step, it's communist. If you take one more step, it's out of space. Yes. So everything outside the suburban family is so other mm. that it might as well be out of space. Mm. And there's a great scene in this where they make a pun on, you know, um, poor, the poor Vision throws some saucers up in the air, some plates, and they hover in the air, and he says, oh, look, flying saucers. Yes. So that kind of convergence of suburban and cosmic coordinates is really clear there um so i thought that was i mean i I thought that was that was interesting i thought the whole thing was almost like an anti-pilot like in that you have i mean it reminded me when we watched mary tyler moore yes and you said it's really weird to watch a sitcom pilot because a sitcom technically shouldn't have a start or an end yes like what you have here are these two characters um what's elizabeth olsen character's name again uh wanda maximoff yes yes so you have wonder and vision who find themselves in this suburban you know, house without any clear sense of how they got there yes. or any clear sense of what they're doing there. And at the same time, you know, 
so that that felt like an anti-pilot. Like you have, you know, instead of establishing the characters, mm. the characters themselves are disoriented. And in, in fact, their their amnesia is a, is a plot point. Yeah, exactly. In this, and but their even, confusion, bafflement. But even the exact nature of that amnesia is not exactly articulated. Like it's not just like oh they've got memory loss. It's it's more like they have an inchoate sense of being of why they're there, but they can't quite articulate it. I mean, and it also to me felt a bit like a deconstruction of a pilot in that, like, you know, when you have a pilot, the characters technically don't have a life before the pilot. Mm. And it's like these two characters, it's, it's like watching fictional characters trying to imagine themselves before a television pilot. Like, although technically they had a background and technically they have a backstory, they can't quite grasp it. So it's it felt like a, a really deft deconstruction of a pilot or an anti-pilot in a way that... You know, I didn't. The sense of humour didn't always appeal to me, but I thought it was quite. It was disorienting in an interesting yes. way. Yes, and also, to, sorry, add to it. You know, the idea that if if it if it starts in a disorienting way, it ends in a very disorienting way too. Yes. So I think, you know, it ends very abruptly. You know, on on Disney Plus, it's a thirty minute, you know, um, a thirty minute playtime, and it ends very abruptly, twenty minutes in, and then shifts to a much more Marvel esque kind of sinuous, silky, fractalated credit sequence. Mm, in colour. In colour. So it's really different. And I assume we'd be coming back for a post-credit scene. Yes. But the credits actually go on for 10 minutes. Yes. So it kind of doesn't quite start and doesn't quite end. No. It's really disorienting. It is. It is. Yeah. That was my primary response to this, which mm. was sort of slight befuddlement, but, but in, in, a, in an entertaining way. I mean, mm. I was expecting a bigger reveal, so a bigger yes. sense that we were establishing the premise of the show and mm. I, you didn't really get a strong sense no. of the premise from this pilot it's like watching it's like they're halfway between it's like halfway between characters that are in the show and characters that are that are aware they're in the show so yes. it, it's not to, they're not totally self-aware but they're not oblivious either like they're they're continually struggling to make sense of where they are yes. at the same time that we're trying to figure out the premise of yes. the, the pilot, in which some is ways really disorienting. In some ways, this feels like an uncanny valley pilot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's neither fish nor fowl. It's neither no. a sitcom nor a complete deconstruction of a sitcom. And for that sense, it felt to me like a, a paratext. <laughs> I mean, you know, if, I mean, it felt like a paratext. You know, like a paratext is a text that doesn't work on its own. And, you know, it obviously it's a paratext because it doesn't, it's part of the MCU, mm. but also on its own terms, it's deliberately disorienting. And it's funny, on the one hand, the humour is very arch and a bit knowing and it keeps you at a distance. I thought the humour was a bit annoying in some ways, but the tone is so strange mm. that I'm kind of drawn back to it despite myself. It reminds me of the first time I ever heard Bjork sing, like in Dance in the Dark. I was almost kind of repelled by her voice. Mm-hmm. And then like a day or two later, I was like, Maybe. <laughs> and then she became one of my favourite singers. Like, it's funny, when Carla watched it, we were both like, oh, this is really, I can't do any more of this. But now, a couple of days later, I'm, I'm curious. Like, it's, 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 it's speaking to me. I want to I yeah. return to it. Perhaps what it's sort of foreshadowing is maybe a, a Truman Show type, yes. type narrative. Exactly. I mean, it, it feels like the two characters are in some kind of simulation, but they're only kind of half aware of it and they're not sure why it would be simulated, which works quite well with the 50s as well. Like, you know, a show like Mad Men, oh no, that's that's later, but, you know, it seems like such a big experience of the 50s is of living, especially for women, is like living a cookie-cutter life that somehow being prescribed for you, you know, especially if you're a suburban housewife, and every now and then thinking, 
is this it? Like, is this like, do you know what I mean? The sense mm. that your life has been simulated or prefabricated for you by people other than yourself. Mm. And there's that sense here as well, like they're both in this cookie cutter life where they should fit in, but something's not right. Something's yes. been simulated. Something's been prefabricated. Yes. If that makes sense. There's, there's also a lot of allusion yes. to the, the MCU more broadly, mm. which is, is sort of made with a wink, wink, nod, nod. Now, one of the unusual things about this is it's it's on a uh, Disney streaming platform, so it's it would not be released as a conventional TV series. No. But nonetheless, there are ad breaks, yes, and there are some certain yes. unusual ads that appear to take place in the MCU. Mm. So in this in this pilot, for example, there's there's an ad for a toaster mm. created by Stark Industries, yep. obviously Tony Stark, yep. Iron Man, mm. and so forth. And again, even in the even the ad, there's just something awry about yeah. the characters, as if they've been programmed or something there's just a there's an unusual pause in the yeah. in the way it's the ads are structured yeah and it's, it's like the show doesn't respect diegetic boundaries like nothing's quite in the show nothing's quite outside it mm. nothing's quite in this 50s world nothing's quite outside it either it's like the whole it's like the show itself takes place at the connective tissue of the mcu yes. like it, it takes it's it takes place where world building occurs rather than being a coherent world in itself. Yes. It's very destabilizing to watch. I, I really wonder as well what what loyal diehard fans of the mm. MCU would think of this too, because one thing I expected from MCU was mm. that some action. And I must say, I was surprised at how oblique the pilot was. Mm. Like I thought we would, from the trailers I'd seen, I thought we would cut to some kind of conventional action, mm. either before or after the credits, or some kind of world building. So like, to its credit, it's extremely especially for a show that's released weekly that you can't binge. It's extremely mm. abstruse yeah. in a way. I mean, I wonder if this like a next generation MCU fan. So, you know, the MCU fans who came of age loving cinema in the early to mid 2010s are now growing up. I mean, at a constant anyway, they're entering adulthood and they want a more high concept yes. riff on the, the people they know so well. So yes, I feel like it's, right. like it's like a, a latter-day high concept riff. And imagine if you knew the MCO, this could be quite sublime to watch. Yes. Well, I think one thing we don't associate the superhero genre with is the sitcom. The suburban 50s sitcom. As a sitcom fan, what did you think of it? Did it work as a sitcom on its own terms? I think it works in a sitcom in the same way that David Lynch's Rabbits is a sitcom. And he's described that as a sitcom. So, look, it's a it's. I thought that the reference very, to David Lynch is very apt. Yes, it yes. does feel like it's, it's very it's, Lynchian. It's that same heightened fifties kind of affect. Mm. Um, yeah, look, it's obviously about the sitcom. It's a meta sitcom, but unlike a lot of meta sitcoms, I think it works. Like you know that as a sitcom lover, I hate hates a strong word, but I'm not a fan of shows like Modern Family mm-hmm. that try to be more clever than the sitcom, or even Arrested Development shows that are anxious to show you they're more intelligent than the sitcom. Mm-hmm. This isn't meta in that sense. It's it's more like a really interesting riff on the sitcom, and you know it. There is a strand of the sitcom which draws on that '50s vibe, like sitcoms that are science fiction sitcoms, like Third Rock from the Sun, where mm-hmm. you have this convergence of domesticity and cosmicity what sitcoms do you think this is influenced by it reminded me a lot of bewitched and i dream of genie yes. like both of those kind of present being a suburban wife almost as a form of white witchcraft yes you know like white magic so to kind of the sheer act of you know juggling on the one hand the sheer act of juggling the responsibilities of a wife require magic but also there's something inherently magical about 50s consumer objects yes there's something inherently <laughs> futuristic so i thought a lot of it is especially a scene where um 
uh, Paul Bettany has his boss over. Was that um, Harold Ramis? No, no. Who, who is that guy? He's really familiar. I think his name's Fred Melamed. Okay, right. But, um, yes. Yeah, we have his boss over for dinner and um, Elizabeth Olsen's in the kitchen, but because she's only just into this housewife role, she's not quite sure what to do. So with the help of her neighbour, Catherine Hahn, love Catherine Hahn, <laughs> um, she makes a meal, but then Catherine Hahn leaves and there's a whole magical sequence where she conjures the food into the air and stuff. Yes. Um, it has a great ending too. Like it ends with the... Um, Paul Bettany's boss almost choking and Paul Bettany saving him and everything. It feels, it's really intense. Like it feels like with him choking and everyone panicking, it feels like the whole screen's about to rupture. It feels like the world's about to come undone. Mm. Um, there's a, actually you haven't, there's a moment at the end of Twin Peaks to return where that almost happens, but I forgot you haven't thought that yet. I won't say it, I won't spoil it. But, you know, um, yeah, but then it doesn't and then it cuts the credit. So it's, it's very tense too, the mm. way in which it maintains that that kind of dissonant, suspicious kind of quality right till the end. Long credit sequence. Yes, yes. Very long credit sequence. Yes, I was, I was similarly baffled by that, that yeah. I started fast-forwarding through expecting, mm. like you said, the, the classic MCU post-credit yes. sequence. But perhaps in a television series, it doesn't make sense. But also, I wonder if that's deliberate. Like, I wonder if they knew that we would be looking for that. Like, that feels like it's... That must be deliberate. I mean, with 10 minutes of credits to go after it ends. I mean, it's like less, like, sorry, more like, you know, it ends at the 19-minute mark and it's a 30-minute thing. So even leaving out that post-credit scene, I think, is a kind of a, a, an oblique gesture in itself. So, look, I'm belatedly fascinated. I, I thought I was out when I watched it, but even the process of talking about it and remembering it, I'm kind of keen to revisit it. You also can't say no to a sitcom. I can't say no to a sitcom. <laughs> I can't say... By the way, just I'm 15 episodes deep into Mary Tyler Moore and it is everything. So what, what about you? Are you in or...? I was I was quite intrigued by yeah. this. I'm I'm intrigued to see exactly how the premise develops. In some ways, this this pilot almost works by withholding. Yes, withholding really really significant. You almost hope it doesn't become any more conventional. Yes, like you hope that. I mean, it's so artful. It's so artful how it withholds yeah. almost everything. In some ways, this is like the very late stage of the superhero genre. Yes. It becomes avant garde. Yeah, this exactly. Is like an avant garde. Exactly. It's late superhero work. show. Yeah, yeah. And. To its, to its credit, I think this is certainly a brave experiment maybe, in taking on the MCU. Maybe if people ask you about the MCU in the future, you should be like, oh, I only watch WandaVision. <laughs> only WandaVision. Only the avant-garde Only WandaVision. <laughs> only WandaVision. Cool. Okay, on to our third series for the week. Um, this is a show that actually came out earlier last year, right? I think like early to mid-2020, but it's just become available on Australian television. Is oh, my okay. Understanding. I think it came out just... Yeah, so it started in 17th April 2020, but we've only got it in Australian television now. It's the show Devils, Italian Diavoli, um, a fi- well, technically a financial thriller by Alessandro Sermonetta. Um, that's what it's billed as. And it, the, the main characters are a uh, young banker, uh, play uh, Massimo Ruggiero, uh, played by, I haven't got the name in front of me, and um, <laughs> Patrick Dempsey. Look, I think calling this a kind of financial thriller is pretty generous. It's a strange <laughs> series. It's it's an all-Italian cast, but it's shot in English, so the whole thing feels dubbed from the outset. <laughs> it's called a financial thriller, but you know there's, there's not enough focus to call it that. It's more a state-of-the-world drama loosely anchored in the financial world. Um, to me, this felt like 20 shows stitched together, and all of them <laughs> were friggin' awful. Um, 
it's the worst kind of transnational production. It's like really over-egged. It's going for a global sweep, but it's spread way too thin. I, I think it's got a, it's like it's kind of it, it also got my goat. There's a certain kind of sententious, humorless film about waning male power that I have nothing with. It's like the kind of series where like everything is swallowed up in solemnity. I'm thinking of shows like Power, Sons of Anarchy, Boss, Gangs of London. This was like financial gangs of London. I mean, I don't friggin' know what was happening in this. It starts with this really with this really serious conversation between Patrick Dempsey and some young trader and from there it spirals out into like about 20 different subplots all of them supposedly related to the financial world but you know really a state of the Europe kind of series um, every actor has resting serious face it's full of serious shots of people in elevators or glass structures there's a recurring metaphor about everyone being fish from David Foster Wallace I thought this was an absolute train wreck I hated it I mean, I, th- I thought thought it was really derivative of billions. I mean, but I thought you know, for all its kind of hard-edged you know affectation, I thought it was really sentimental compared to billions. I mean, billions is a campy sense of humour. I thought Patrick Dempsey was copying Damian Lewis in billions. I thought his firm looked like Axe Capital. I thought this was like billions made for investment bankers who actually want to be able to preserve their sense of self while watching it. I friggin' hated it. I thought it was really incompetent. Like, where was the focus? Well, I want to um, interject a couple of times, but I just thought, this is just too good. I this think, Jeremiah is just too good. Can we better I, just, just sing it, sister. Can I say what, one more thing? <laughs> Inter- interjecting random news footage isn't the same thing as building a sense of topicality. <laughs> like think, every 10 friggin' minutes, there's some, we get it. It's about <laughs> Europe in crisis. Just write it. Like, I, write, a, write a kind of competent narrative script instead of before you launch into all these pretentious, like, dream sequences. I have to oh, say. Frig, I hate it. I, 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 this is my least favourite show already of 2021. It's like, it's like Financial Gangs of London. I, I have to say, just interjecting there. I like, just can't do it. Uh, I've got a couple of questions for you, yeah. Billy. Um, the first is, did you understand what was happening? I had, after the first 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes... Including the first 10 well, minutes. Okay, the first 10 minutes, I at least understood that both of these people were important financial people. After that, I had no idea. It was like every possible, like, you know, slick Euro kind of genre. None of them were competent. They introduced all these characters yeah. in different contexts. His wife contexts. goes missing. She's working as a call girl. Someone gets a sass. I thought there was like there's, there's a, a guy lot who's of, a student, but it was also in on some sort of insider trading. I thought, there, I thought there was a lot of accent signalling in this as well. Like everyone had a really thick accent. Just do it in Italian. We can handle subtitles. Well, I think that would be dubbed. preferable. I mean, oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, I literally couldn't understand what a lot of these no, characters were saying. No, I felt like they. It felt like they were speaking English for the first time. Like they, 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 were, they, were, they were they were delivering the script phonetically without any understanding. Just do it in Italian. We can handle it. And also, I mean, out of all the actors to anchor, to be the only English speaker, Patrick Dempsey, I mean, to have him as the only actor anchoring the English component, what was he doing? He was just sitting in a glass. There was so much glass in this series as well. Like, glass doesn't equal profundity. I have to say, I think, I think the way this is being advertised is a little bit of a bait and switch. Yes. So the, the fact that Patrick Dempsey anchors all the, all the Absolutely. advertising of the he's show... A, he's a peripheral character at best. He, he is, really. He's... He's a, a hook, and in the show itself, he plays a very... I was expecting him to, him to be the protagonist, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. And I, mean, I kept waiting for him to I just take the ball and run with it. I, I realised, like, with a certain mounting sense of dread that mm. he was not going to do that. You see him in the first five minutes and the last five minutes. Part of me thinks, like, was he in the first day of shooting absolutely. and then just 
he, it was like, I'm out of here. I mean, the whole... P- pandemic's hit. Italy's not a great place to be. I mean, the whole thing feels shot out of sequence. <laughs> I mean, it feels like, you know, where was the editing? I mean, like, I mean, I just, you know... I mean, it's like the whole series is about... It's, it's obviously going for like a network drama, like a systems yes. drama. The whole thing's about points of connection rather than actual narrative continuity. But it's it's stupid. Yes. Like it doesn't work. Like, you know, you've got to have a, a certain art to creating a network drama or a systems drama. Yes. You know, you want to evoke the whole gradually, like a picture coming to life. Like, this is like the picture comes to life and it's a friggin' Jackson Pollock. <laughs> it's awful. I have... After, after I realised I would not be able to understand what's happening, I started enjoying the show is on a so bad it's good level well yeah, I, I agree enjoying is a is a is maybe maybe too extreme a word here but there was some there was some quite enjoyable enjoyably so bad it's good moments okay. so i'll, I'll give okay. you the first one hit me with your list <laughs> i really enjoyed invoking the david foster wallace short story every friggin' this is, 10 this minutes is water but they talk about this this anecdote yep. which that which david foster wallace yep. popularized where you know you have two fish who meet one fish and one of the fish says, oh, you know, how, how's your day going? How's the water? And the other fish say, what the hell is water? Well, fish presumably have some conception <laughs> of water. That's why they don't jump out of the top of it. I mean, I also thought that was, I didn't even really pay the David Foster Wallace anecdote, especially in this series. Yes. And then, and then well, they've got this water, for, this water metaphor. Mm. But then they say, oh, but this guy, Massimo Ruggiero, mm. he's a shark in the water. Yeah, I know. I know. They mix even I more. Know. Yeah. And then Patrick Dempsey says... And then he, he makes a devil analogy yes. and says, invoking the, the usual suspects, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And I was like, we've got three metaphors. You've yeah. got a water metaphor, we've got yeah. the shark metaphor, we've got the devil metaphor, also, all in the first couple of minutes. But with that, I mean, the series was definitely trying to pull that off as its own or try to pull it off as some kind of common aphorism. That's the usual suspects. The usual suspects came up with that. I mean, look, I get what you're saying. I mean, you know, you have to enjoy it as camp. I guess just like what really got my goat was, you know, again, you know, for all that it, you know, purports to be like this hard-edged kind of series, it never challenges the self-seriousness of the finance sector. No. So it's like the way it presents the finance sector is like, well, there's a few bad apples, but these people really are masters of the universe and we yes. need to respect them as such. Like, it's the kind of show you can imagine investment bankers loving, even though it's kind of targeting. It's like, it felt like it was written by an ex-banker who was like reflecting moodily on the system and on the corruption of it all after he'd made his money and retired. <laughs> yes. Like, it was all about exotic alienation, the glamorous burden of being one of the richest people in the world. Like, it was so, like, friggin', like friggin navel-gazing. It was like, it was like... Invest, watching investment bankers morbid mortal and fantasies of themselves that's how much I hated it I mean they're so sentimental and sententious I've got a, a few more questions yeah for go you. ahead go ahead uh, Patrick Dempsey obviously famously played uh, Doctor in Grey's Anatomy yeah. were you a McDreamy were you Team McDreamy or Team McSteamy <laughs> Look, I have to say, I've never been a huge fan of Greys. Okay. Um, McDreamy or McSteamy? Well, I'd probably be more McDreamy. I think that sounds like the more the more appropriate. But look, you know, even in American Horror Story, I mean, I mean, he is, I mean, he is just, he's just got such a, I mean, he's got a soapy presence, right? Like yes. he, he's a soap actor. So yes. outside of soap, I don't think he works at all. And you know, in this kind of film, which it, this is the kind of series which would think of itself as anti-soap, yes. you know, hard-hitting, transnational <laughs> systems, networks. His presence just is totally dissonant. I also friggin' hated the main banker guy. It's like, you're just a banker. <laughs> like, why, why all the lugubriosity? You're just a banker. That's all. Like, why, why have you suddenly become the kaleidoscope for every possible serious moment under the sun? So my second Sorry, question... Keep, keep going, keep going. Keep my going. second question, that's all right. Um, my second question is... 
does this make the so- does this bring sexy back to the sovereign debt crisis? Well, it's funny. Like, I wonder whether there is a certain kind of debt drama. Like, I'm thinking of a film like Costa Gavras Capital. It's a good name drop. Um, <laughs> you know, like films which are about like capturing the broad sweep of debt in a kind of exotic or alluring way. Yes, I mean, well, margin call would be margin another, call. Another yeah, movie exactly. But in terms, in terms, big short again, like in terms of bringing sexy back, like I think Billions just captures the self-seriousness of bankers and punctures it and has a campy humour that's... And, you know, this... I was hoping this would plug the Billions hole because the yes. most recent series of Billions stopped filming halfway through due, through due to COVID. Right. It's, 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 it's on a hiatus mid-season. So, you know, I mean, I know you're not a huge fan of Damien Lewis and Billions, and I, I, he can be a little bit sententious for me, but Patrick Dempsey was like Damien Lewis to the thousandth degree. Yes. Like it was just... it was Everything was just drip. It was just like... Well, maybe I'll take back what I said about it being a soap. This is like a male melodrama, like a male weepy. Like mm. everything was lugubrious, everything was serious, and the seriousness was just so like sentimental and over the top. It's like you'd think from watching it, there was nothing, nothing more kind of deserving of pathos in the world than being a banker with a beard. <laughs> like, and how much of heavy lifting? The beards and moustaches. This was like massive fashion, heavy lifting. The suits, the yeah. fashion and the suits. GQ. It's like watching like just the douchiest GQ. I think really at the, the centre of the problem of this TV series is a very empty, uncharismatic central performance oh, by, by, I suppose, like a cut-rate Bradley Cooper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, I thought all the performances were really uncharismatic. I mean, there's not a lot of charisma in it. Like, it's it's so drowned in its own self pity that there's not a lot of room for spark or panache. I mean, surely being a multimillionaire is more fun than this makes it seem. <laughs> surely. Well, I think I think billions at least gets the enjoyment. Billions gets billions the gets of... <laughs> the inane enjoyment of it all. Yeah, yeah um, there's, there's no pacing. Like for a series that was all supposedly about you know global networks. I mean, the pacing pacing is critical for a show like that. And the pacing here was just non-existent. So like, incomprehensible. Do you find there were bits you had literally no idea? What's I happening? I the way a lot of the the plots fit together was. I think you were meant to understand them, yeah, or at least understand the way characters interacted. Mm. But there were some characters I had absolutely no relate, no understanding of how they related to another. And it, the dubbing thing—I mean, it's not just that it it sounded dubbed; it had that same distantiating effect of dubbing. You know, when everything seems to be unfolding in a kind of murk, and you can't yes. quite get through it or get so much yes. glass. So I think so yes. much glass. I think that's the other point over glass there. Glass is not. <laughs> Is not a plot point. So one other question I had was, mm-hmm. is the best thing about living under late capitalism the architecture? Yeah, well, I mean, this was like, you know, boring dystopia. It was just like every single interior was like, I mean, it's like just showing someone against glass doesn't necessarily make it profound. And look, I feel like I, I've got nothing, I've got nothing good to say about this. So <laughs> I'm well, a hard out. <laughs> I have to say, I'm looking forward to you being influenced by, by this billion starting invoking the market as a person the market doesn't like I know, surprises exactly i know exactly i know the, the market mar- is in a bearish mood i know we just heard so much about them i mean the market just oh it yeah it was yeah it was it was like it made gangs of london look for i mean gangs of london at least had perky action scenes yeah. and, and a strong opening i thought this was just yeah, like whoever wants to watch this, go away, have a cry about the market. <laughs> to be honest, like those of those people who do work in the financial services industry, I don't think we'll get a lot out of this because it's not very realistic. It's tight. It sort of tries to integrate all these other did you not weird like, conspiracy narratives. Did you feel like, like it was a bit like watching the financials 
financial services industry self mythologizing like all there those was, all those like like you know kind of pathetic conspiracy touches like it in it, a dull way though. yeah well i agree but I, but i still but i think you know that industry does breed a certain kind of dull hubris like i think it <laughs> it seemed to it, it, this felt to me like an investment banker not all investment bankers are bad, obviously, but it felt to me like an investment banker contemplating their global sweep in a dull and hubristic way. Yes. That was how it felt to me. Yes, yes. Look, mm. it is, It is. I think, a very pontificating show. Oh, that yeah. Is, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, you know, the writing is pretty subpar and there is definitely, there might certainly be something lost in translation here. So Yeah, but they didn't try to translate it. <laughs> or they, they, they over-translated it. <laughs> so for that reason, I, I actually found this quite boring and very difficult to sit through, yep. to be honest. So yeah. I, like, think you, like Billy, I think I think you really disliked it. You're just being a bit moderate, so I get more <laughs> fired up. I, I feel like you had nothing with this too. I feel like this triggered something in Oh, you. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, there's I, 50 I, minutes, I'll never get back again. <laughs> <laughs> for for many of the same reasons, I am also out on this. Cool, hard out. Okay, onto this week's archive corner. We're doing a show. Surprise, that surprise, sitcom. Back to the sitcom. <laughs> um, we're doing a, a sitcom I've wanted to watch for a while. Um, it's a living, um, which you know it's one of these shows that's become available on Amazon Prime. We've talked a bit about how Amazon Prime is one of the best archives. It does. It's amazing for old kind movies, of, old TV shows, and be, like. B-grade stuff, so stuff yeah. that's not necessarily in that top tier of critical acclaim. Stuff you're absolutely gobsmacked would be would on be any there. sort of streaming platform. Exactly, and this is an example of that. So it's a living with a sitcom. It's got an interesting production history. It's about a group of waitresses who work in a restaurant on the top of the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles. So Bonaventure Hotel, it's in the Bunker Hill district of LA. It's often seen as a pinnacle of the... Um, redevelopment of Bunker Hill in the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, during which time the neighbourhood went from being like a slum, basically, to the pinnacle of kind of postmodern architecture in the state. It's a classic postmodern building, so mm. and it features a lot of films and television series. So the waitresses work in the restaurant on the top floor, and the first season was not hugely successful. So the second season, they rebooted it, brought in some new people and called it Making a Living, and for a while, that's looked like to, that looked like all there would be, just two seasons of this show with a different title for each season. But then it became so successful in reruns that it was in syndication that they came back for three more seasons. So one of the, you know, the quirks of that unusual production history is that Amazon immediately starts you with the season two pilot rather than the season one pilot. So I accidentally watched the season two pilot first. Interesting. I'm very watching. interested to see what so, you think of uh, the difference between It's a Living and Making, making a Living. living. So I'll, I'll, talk, I'll tell you about Making a Living in a moment. Look, um, I, I love this. This is my kind of show through and through. We talked a little bit last week about how, you know... Do you think the pitch for this pilot involved the Bonaventura Hotel? Or do you think we're going to explore the, the, the unusual postmodern architecture well, of this? It, it, we, talked last, we mentioned last time it's such an interesting juxtaposition because, you know, the um, famous literary critic Frederick Jamison wrote about the Bonaventure Hotel. Do you think that was in the, that was in oh, the pitch? it's totally Jamisonian, totally <laughs> Jamisonian. And he said basically the Bonaventure Hotel was a cipher for postmodernism. He said that everything that's disorienting about postmodern space and postmodern experience is encapsulated in the design of the hotel. And having actually been there, it's a remarkably disorienting building in a whole lot of ways. And the films that are shot there, like Nick of Time, True Lies, make use of that. So it's interesting to see that paired with a sitcom which is all about reliability mm. um, of space like you know spaces that are familiar comforting and it's interesting I don't think the hotel makes a huge like the, the architecture well, I, I'll put it this way I don't think this was shot in the Bonaventure <laughs> Hotel no I don't think so either um, in fact I don't think any 
even I don't think they even shot stock footage at the Bonaventure well, Hotel. No, no, I have to disagree with you on that. In as you move on through the series, there are some stock shots of the elevator going up, and that's that, that's an important bonding right. experience. I, I've gone ahead, as you can see. Right. Look, okay. um, this is this is I, I love the subgenre of hospitality sitcoms. Okay, um, interesting. You know, like they always have a really good you know behind and behind the scenes kind of vibe. So mm. the characters and here. Something that's interesting is in the the pilot for the second season, it's nearly all all takes place in the restaurant, whereas the pilot for the first season, it's all basically behind the scenes. Yes. Um, something that really surprised me about this, you know, the the, the Bonaventure is such a prestige space, and this feels like a prestige sitcom, but the it feels like a very working class comedy. Yes. Like the humour is very blue, um, and it's very worldly. So that even in the pilot, there's lots of frank talk about sex. There is. There's a scene where the, the women, the waitresses all reassure a woman it's okay to be a virgin um, because they have to be on... <laughs> it's a very strange focus for a pilot. It's very sexual. <laughs> and because they have to be on at the restaurant the whole time, they're kind of very candid behind the scenes. And at times, it almost feels like a kind of a brothel narrative. Like they, the, the woman who's in charge of them is always encouraging them to flirt with customers and they push back. Yes. And the kind of the arc of this pilot is the the madam of the waitress is saying, you've got to be okay with men pinching you. Yes. And then she gets pinched herself and doesn't like it. So yes. it's a bit of an edgy feminist kind of blue collar vibe to it, which I really liked. Um, well, and in a strange way, it's almost like they're addressing issues before they really could be, I suppose, crystallised yes, socially. Exactly. So we, I suppose it's like a lot of uh, sitcoms that that are brave enough to broach issues that perhaps couldn't be dealt with oh, in a dramatic text. Absolutely. So this is something I love about sitcoms. I mean, sitcoms are a real repository of progressive thinking because because it's seen as a lowbrow form, they mm. can afford to discuss stuff. So the Golden Girls had episodes about gay marriage, medicinal marijuana, abortion, divorce, singledom, lesbian relationships. Mm. And you can see that here. Something else I thought... It's like, it's like progressive progressive content in a regressive medium. Well, I think regressive is a bit harsh. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, something else I noticed is it, it's... um. It's very, it's a living. It's a living. It's got a very musical theatre vibe. So, like, it's got a kind of theme song they all sing together. We first see them arm in arm, Broadway style. They wear a kind of leotard style <laughs> uniform. So it feels embedded in show culture. You know, it feels embedded in LA show culture and image culture in yes. a way. Uh, part of me looking at that was wondering uh, whether, did, did, in some ways, did this inspire or at least prefigure Hooters? Yes, as I, a restaurant, because there seems to be something that they are waitresses, but also performers or entertainers. And this is something that's, I mean. That's strange about it, right? And that it is—it's a—it's a prestige space, mm. but it kind of imagines it almost as like, you know, a bar in the Boondocks or something. Yes. It's a very blue-collar kind of space, yes. which is which is interesting. Yes, what, they've, what, got to, they've got to serve those lecherous dentists. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, what did you think about it? Like, what was your compared to some of the other sitcoms we've watched? What were your? I mean, I loved it. Um, I've already watched quite a few more episodes. It's on the back burner after Mary Tom. As someone who sold it to me as the Bonaventura Hotel. Yes. I probably would have preferred just walking through that space than watching this to be honest yes well i guess i've already done that so i was ready for the next the next step in the journey i, I think a two camera maybe even one camera sitcom mm. is probably not the best best way of exploring this very interesting space yeah although something i'm interested about is you know two things firstly i mean and this is something i wonder whether the whole series will take place in the restaurant because from what i've seen so far it does so i, I like that idea of them all converging from different parts of LA on the restaurant. And I wonder whether the parts of LA they come from will become a part of the story. Because, like, you know, in Golden Girls, the characters all come from different parts of America. 
you know, in shows like Will and Grace and Seinfeld and Sex and the City, where they live in New York is really important. I wonder if LA ramifies in quite the same way. Like, I wonder if their their neighbourhoods will be as much a part of it. So, although... As as in that they'd be shot, depicted? Well, d- I don't d- think they'd be depicted, or just be, or just be a part of their character, you know, like right. someone comes from the freeway, someone lives downtown, stuff like that. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of the pleasure of sitcoms is attaching to the real minutiae, you know, like they're, they're rich in spatial minutiae. <laughs> I have to say that the window, this is meant to sort of evoke, I suppose, a yes. uh, top floor, maybe even revolving yes. restaurant, is a pretty weak... It's not the best backdrop, but it, it, it's pretty obviously it's a matte, look, it's a matte picture. But I do love a matte picture. I mean, it's interesting. Like the second, the second pilot which I watched. Did you watch that? The second pilot. I did not. It's interesting. Like the second pilot. This is something else I was wondering about the show. Well, I think we're really breaking original ground. Now, I don't think this was probably possibly never been discussed on air. What is the, or at least since 1982, mm-hmm. what is the the key difference between It's Olivia and Making a Live when they well, rebooted it? Well, here's something that's interesting. Like. In, this is ultimate niche content. Yes, niche content. Niche content. <laughs> niche content. In in the making a pilot, the second season pilot, making a living pilot, um, it all takes place front of house. There's very little okay. behind the scenes stuff. The blue collar element isn't there as much. It's much classier. But something that's interesting about that pilot is like from the outset, it emphasises a continuity between the restaurant and the rest of the hotel, which you don't see so much in the first season pilot. So it's like by the second season, they've learned that the sitcom's going to be better if they embed the restaurant back in the hotel. So... There's a scene you know, in the in the second series pilot where someone wants a doggy bag to take food back to their room. This guy comes from Costa Rica, so he kind of emphasises that the hotel's like a global space. Okay. And he also tells a waitress he's been shacked up in the hotel since the start of the baseball season, just watching baseball. So I imagine like, that would work better with the sitcom bit, format. So three yeah. things there. It emphasises continuity between restaurant and hotel. It emphasises a hotel as a kind of global hub. Yes. And it also emphasises that people live in the hotel yes. in a cosy domestic kind of way. So it yes. domesticates. It's a place that people live as well as just visit. So yes. I like the, the way you describe sitcom as sort of reconfiguring family in an unusual yes, way. exactly. So the second season gets that and it gets what makes a hotel um, unique. And there's also more scenes in the second series pilot where customers invite I mean, the premise is that um you have the entire like mets or something staying there a baseball team and some of them invite the women back to their room um doesn't happen but there's a sense of a kind of erotic continuum between the hotel and the restaurant as well so the second season it does a better job of embedding it in the hotel yes and it gets what makes a hotel unique and it also makes a hotel as a whole cozy so that that's a criticism you could make of the first season pilot right i think that the, the pilot almost felt like it was shot in a cafeteria yes in and, some ways. and yeah the restaurant is jettisoned from the bonaventure hotel is the piano guy in both the piano man no so you don't see him in the second one but i think he comes in later in the second season okay yeah um was he wearing literally wearing the puffy the puffy suit puffy from, suit from, from Seinfeld? Seinfeld? Yeah, I wondered that. I mean, the, the, the fashion is really on point for the eighties. Well, this is really interesting. So this this series started in nineteen eighty. Mm. So this was a really a real cusp of seventies mm. going into the eighties. Mm. What what sort of I suppose sense did that give you of that transition between the well, between the see, um, the decades? Because I I suppose we often say that there's a kind of long seventies, a long eighties yes. that progresses up to about. 81 mm. or 80. Did you get it? Do you get a clear yeah. sense of that? So, so as you said, it's a sort of liminal show between decades. It must have been shot in 79, mm. at least part of it. Yeah, the music surprised me because for a show that's set in LA mm. in the 80s, Bonaventure Hotel, I thought there'd be really synthy music or piped in music. But instead, the music is this kind of show tunes, Broadway style. So yes. I wondered whether that reflected the, the kind of. Um, 
you know, predominance of, you know, neo-musicals at that time. So like A Chorus Line, All That Jazz, Cabaret. Like mm. it was a time when... And I also wondered too whether that was an attempt to humanise the show business in LA. So, you know, instead of us making it about film culture and film celebrities, having a kind of Broadway quality, which is very anachronistic in LA, yeah. to make it just seem that little bit kind of... Because a sitcom in downtown LA is quite rare too. But yeah, that, that, that surprised me. Like the musical choices surprised me. I think for me at least this struck me as more of a 70s than yes. an 80s sitcom yes. Yes. and lacks a lot of the hallmarks of an 80s yes. oh, sitcom, absolutely. which yes. is, you know, those reversion to family values. Yes, it's um, pre-Reagan sitcom. Yeah, yeah, more conventional family structures. That's one of my least favourite periods of sitcom, the Reagan era conservative. Yeah, I agree. You know, it had that, that provisional domesticity, that loose domesticity and quite cruisy kind of domesticity I love yeah. too. One question I have for you, Billy, mm. is how do you stuff the old tomato? So Yeah, I, I was wondering <laughs> about that. There were, there were lots of cultural references yeah. and even sayings that mm. I found perplexing yes I, I could not understand a lot of the a lot of the punchlines of I agree. These jokes. it was surprisingly quaint wasn't yeah. it like it felt it felt old-fashioned almost old-fashioned in a kind of british kind of way yes. like it felt i agree like it felt almost like early 70s maybe in that mm. respect speaking of which i just i forgot to say something earlier um with wandavision just speaking of food i want that open grilled cheese sandwich that you made <laughs> just the stuffing the tomato made me realize i've been thinking about that grilled sandwich yeah but yeah, yeah. Any, any other questions? Anything else you thought? Are we the first people to have watched this since 1982? I wondered that. <laughs> like, I wondered. I wonder how many people are watching this on Amazon Prime. How many people come across it by by accident? <laughs> the 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 quality of the actual print is not great. No, and yet the rapport between the women is very dynamic. I love the kind of madam lady. Yes. Yeah, like I she she's she's edgy. Yeah, there is, there is, I suppose, a it's solidarity. A hard, it's got a hard edge to yeah, it. Yeah, there's a solidarity that all the girls, Street all the, the women have. But yeah. there is certainly a hard edge. And I noticed at the end of the, the pilot, after they undergo like a pretty serial, serio-comic, uh, I suppose, Bonding. discussion yeah. about about this girl being a virgin, mm. um, one of the waitresses comes up and interjects and says, I know you're going through a heavy feeling. But I'm dying out here. Yeah, yeah. It sort of brings it back to the, yeah, exactly. the, the sort of quotidian space of the yeah, sitcom exactly. in some ways. So I think in some ways this is reminding a little bit of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yep. Something that broaching some serious issues yeah, like totally. sexual harassment, labour exploitation. Yep. But doing so in a way that's in the workplace. ultimately in a fairly lighthearted, non threatening way. Absolutely. So I think it's I think it's very interesting. Mm. I want to see more of the Bonaventura Hotel. Yeah. And... Let, let's do season two sometime. <laughs> I'm a hard and um speaking of Lighthard, do you have a sitcom for me this week? Well, interestingly what's enough... Your, what's your pilot club choice, archive so, choice? So I, I had a couple of different options. Mm, and me. I suppose my, my inspiration really for this one came from my sort of pursuit of watching a lot of the films in the Criterion collection. Oh, so I sort of went into a little flex. bit of a... That's a good flex. <laughs> I went through a little bit of a rabbit hole where I was yeah, looking right. at... I was quite interested in seeing the Criterion collection. You're in the Criterion space at the moment. Yeah, I was in the Criterion space mm-hmm. and seeing how that compared to sort of other sort of film mm-hmm. canons mm-hmm. and noticed that one of the... Uh, sort of within the first 100 releases on the mm-hmm. Criterion channel, there was actually a TV show. What was that? And I'd never heard of it. Mm-hmm. And I was really intrigued. Firstly, you know... I did not know that the Criterion Collection released TV mm. series. And firstly, that this would be significant enough to be released within their first hundred. So what was it? Hit me. It's a series called Fishing with John. I've, I've never heard of it. I Talk never, me through it. I had never heard of it either. Now, it it is a, a show that's freely available on YouTube. Mm. 
about 20 minutes long each episode. Mm. I think there was only one season made, as I haven't done my any deep research on mm. it so far. Became a cult a cult classic, mm. and that's about all I know. So why do you think it's on Criterion? Is it is it a famous director or a famous? I think it might some some of the guests might be quite famous, mm. but I think it's just just purely by virtue of mm. its of its cult reputation. Yeah, right. And that's as far as I know. So I'm really going into this slightly blind. Intriguing. Uh, so, but so, it's a, it's an intriguing intriguing choice yeah. that you know about which I know very little. So next week we'll be fishing with John. With John. <laughs> Looking forward to it. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>